0: Not your average operator, not your average operator, not your average operator. Welcome back to another episode of Your Average Operator with me, Paul Mellon McFadden. (laughs) Sitting here with my two lads, how are you doing there, uh, Tio?
1: (laughs) I'm doing pretty good, man. Can you go get some coffee? You seem tired.
0: Mate. I need coffee. I was good to go yesterday, though. Yeah. Sitting here with Mike, two of us, yeah. two of the three and there he goes, we're here. And someone, I'm not sure what the technical term is, but it rhymes with fucked it away.
1: Um, I'm pretty sure that a third person was doing man shit.
0: Man shit.
2: It's, it, it sounds like you messed up your microwave and your whole thing. And you're trying to figure out the difference between 220 and 110. And you, you come off like you're some type of engineering rocket science there you know whatever and you're like i figured it out i plugged it into another outlet after i fucked the show away that's what i heard
0: (laughs) for the listeners we we had a date and we got together and there's only two out of three here (laughs) and there was a suntan one was missing (laughs) slowpoke rodriguez struck again
1: i was just basically rewiring my uh microwave oven stack no big deal, it's what I do as a hobby and it just, time got away from me.
0: Uh, It's good. How are you, Mike?
2: Uh, I'm doing pretty good. I uh, obviously last weekend, oh, last week was Thanksgiving and got to go home and had a really nice time. Uh, I graduated from my course and that is pretty good. So I'm pretty, feels great not to have homework and assignments and I actually have some free time to myself. Um. Got in some deer hunting up in north, northwest Pennsylvania, and it was about 10 degrees and snow. There's some good stuff. Didn't get a deer, though. That's hunting, but uh, they were bedded down, and they're pretty thick, so uh, maybe next year, but um, yeah, and and took some time sitting out in that uh, tree stand to do some, uh, some uh, you know, in-depth thinking and processing some things that were coming up, you know, when you're sitting in a tree stand and it's dead quiet for 12 hours from sunup till sundown, you have a lot of time to think and reflect on things. And uh, honestly, I made some changes in my life. And, uh, you know, it's through that assessment, which honestly is going to feed into our topic today, which maybe some people have heard, but uh, we're going to get into the OODA loop. I don't know if anybody heard of that, the OODA, the OODA loop, right? And we'll get into that, but Overall, Mike's good.
0: Yeah, good, mate. I mean, twelve hours, twelve hours stationary. If like if you if your mind's not working, then I think you know you need to seriously have a good old look at yourself if you can sit there for twelve hours in silence and not have a few, you know, introspective thoughts and reflections. And I reckon that's a, I reckon that's a solid thing for any person to to do, to have some time out and you know, I mean, meditate, that's whatever it is.
2: I mean, that's what you pilots do, right? You you act like you guys are actually engaged, and then you hit autopilot, and you guys take a nap. You know, I mean, <laughs> and then you get out. Yeah. Everybody applauds. You know, the people that clap when, when you land. You know, it's that's that's for
0: guys like you. We've you told to, him too I, much, I, Raph. We've told him I've too much. We're gonna have to kill him.
1: <laughs> I've never understood the clapping. Never, not once. Even when the <laughs> landings are good, I'm like, I don't like. I've, obviously, people are uh, kind of afraid of turbulence, um, and here's a public service announcement. The planes are fine. The plane is not going to come out of the air. Usually, what happens is the flight attendants get hurt um, you know, because they're pushing around that 300-pound cart that starts floating all over and usually crushes them. That's usually the injuries I've seen flying for the airline. So. <laughs> crushes so them. Start-
0: You've seen them crushed.
1: Yeah, 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 actually, no, two flight attendants. One had uh, like a pretty severe neck injury and the other lady had like a broken femur, not a femur, but like a broken foot or something.
0: Now everyone's really terrified.
1: Yeah, but notice I said the flight attendants, the passengers are always fine. You're down. No,
0: I don't. My wife used to be quite afraid of flying and it was all about just letting her know it's just like water going down a creek. And the water sometimes goes up and down over the rocks. But there's plenty of water underneath, as in there's still 30,000 feet of air underneath your wing. That air's going up and down a little bit. You get a few bumps. Yeah. But I don't think we should tell Mike any more secrets or he'll put his package in.
1: (laughs) Well, it's already been denied seven times. I think seven is the limit.
0: Well, I recently did it today, so maybe number eight. I like that that episode of The Simpsons that gave away all of our secrets when Bart got in the military aircraft and there was a fly and a land button. That was all the all the controls.
2: Goodness. Um, hey, so before we kick off the topic, I, I would just like to visit back. So um, I had some feedback regarding. Uh, the veterans day episode and we, you know, we were kind of talking and I put out the challenge of people to go out and interact with some veterans and, and try to do some new things and a new approach. And, um, <clears throat> I got a message from, 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 uh, one of the listeners and she kind of took the advice and went to the VA and, uh, shared a really good, um, really good story uh kind of about it and was just saying uh needless to say i took the challenge to heart and over the weekend i volunteered at our local va hospital and had the opportunity to meet with several amazing people my first visit was in the navy veteran that shared stories of his time on the uss kitty hawk and uh which at the time was the largest aircraft carrier and uh he had a great passion for golf an advocate for alzheimer's association which um Um, uh, she had some personal stuff with dementia and everything like that within her family. So she can relate. And, uh, she said, we spoke for hours and it it was just so natural and welcoming. Like we've known each other for years. Uh, he shared how he puts God or how God puts people in our lives. Um, he lost his, uh, he lost his wife and had nobody visiting him for, for the holiday. And, uh, she just kind of showed up out of nowhere and literally made his day. Uh, and he wasn't, um, you know, he wasn't uh, expecting that at all and ended up having our couple hour long conversation. And, uh, yeah, so I, I just wanted to share that. And, uh, you know, it's cool to hear people kind of took what we said and went out and, and had some, uh, some, some, some special time with some special people in the VA and, and reaching out to veterans the way they honestly deserve you know, not the the thank you for your service and go about your day, but actually getting to know one of them. And, you know, I always say that's living history. So thanks out there for sharing your story. And uh, we hope many other people got to do that as well and continue to.
0: Thank you very much, guys. That's an awesome story. Really, really good. I mean, it's, it's nothing, but like I've, I've, I have to say, I've never had a single bad interaction. It's always been absolute gold. And every conversation I've had with a veteran from that, from any of those previous generations has just been something I cherish. So, so well, well done. And, you know, it's such a nice thing to think of a a widower having uh, someone come and visit on a day like that. It's just fantastic. Yeah. So well, well done. Listeners podcast land.
1: (laughs) All
0: right. So, uh, for me, I've got coming up, we're, uh, we're off shortly to the Dubai Sevens, which is a big, it's actually the biggest rugby tournament in the world. They have the professionals, obviously, but then they've got all the way down all the, the clubs and kids and uh, women's and there's a netball competition. And so on. They've got nine uh, rugby pitches and they have kickoffs every 20 minutes from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day. And it's just a, a fantastic uh, event to go to. So I'm flying out tonight for a couple of days over there in Dubai and going to have a, you know, a few celebrations with the guys regardless of how the the game goes, but it, it's just a, a good positive, you know, good energy, train for it, go over there and compete, Raf.
1: Are you going to be able to see uh, Simon? Is he going to link up with you guys? S-
0: Simon probably will not make it this year. It'll be the first time we haven't seen each other there for a long time. We enjoyed uh, some reminiscences over gatorade brown gatorade as he calls it uh after the last time we were there we <laughs> were there together but i'll be i'll be making the uh pilgrimage to the physio tent where much strapping is applied to old bodies before and after games <laughs> and uh yeah I'll, I'll think of him i'll probably i might even call him when i'm there but yeah. uh yeah shout out to simon
2: yeah, and, and just a quick shout out to one hell of a teammate that I learned about his travels and his commitment to the team. I won't say his name, but uh, he's a teammate of Mellon's and he lives not too far from me. And he flew from the East Coast way out to a small island out in the Pacific and then is also continuing his way back to Saudi just to play with his teammates uh, in, a, in a tournament this weekend. Um, if that's not commitment as a teammate, then uh, I don't know what is. But uh, if he's listening, good freaking on you, dude, and uh, that's 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 why we love you.
0: We uh, we need the world's best mullet to fly in and join us. <laughs> and uh, I just get that that cool breeze. So there's a bit of salt spray and the smell of coconut, and then there's my brother from another mother rolls up. Yeah, shout out. He knows who he is.
1: He's a straight-up legend.
0: All right. So, should we get to this this week's topic, uh, guys? Yeah. The actual the actual topic: decision making, and the OODA loop: observe, orient, decide, act. This all came out of uh, a short slideshow presentation done by uh, U.S. Air Force Colonel John Boyd. Uh, he was a Korean War fighter pilot, and they he was. Uh, Sabre pilot, an F-86 Sabre. And he went through and he was a really senior dude, one of these guys, like a visionary. After career, they, they got a hold of some MiG-15s and they did a whole bunch of analysis on them. And they found to their horror that the MiG-15 actually outperformed the American fighter at the time, the, the Sabre. It had a better rate of turn. It had a better rate of climb. It had a better gun. And they were like, man, we were shooting these things down like they were... You know, fish in a barrel. It was like a close to a ten to one shoot down ratio, and he did all the analysis and was involved in it. And one of the things was the Soviet technology for the canopy was still World War Two style, and so they had like that old lattice, like French windows, all the small squares of glass going all the way over the top, whereas the Sabre had a bubble canopy, like a, like on a Mustang or what you see on a, an F sixteen, and. This observation that he had when he was involved in this testing program was that there was a a better piece of equipment that was not operated as well by the pilot. And the key thing was that the American and allied pilots were able to do a decision-making process faster than the uh, Chinese, Russian, communist, North Korean uh, adversary because they had an interrupted observation and decision-making cycle. And so he was like, just the fact that they could see the opposition better through that clear bubble canopy meant that the uh, allied fighter pilots could outperform these, uh, the enemy who had a better bit of equipment but had broken visibility. And anyway, this guy sat down and came up with this amazing process called the OODA loop. And that led to the design of uh, the F-15, F-18, F-16, which is just the benchmark for uh, fighter aircraft which had everything is based on speeded decision-making rather than what's got the best engine or the best wings or the most hard points. And this decision-making cycle, basically the theory behind it is whoever can have a decision-making cycle go faster. If yours can be inside your enemy's timeline. If yours is five seconds and his is 10 seconds, it's the same as someone in a chess game being able to move twice for every one move of the opposition. And pretty much, if you know the basics of chess, you could beat Garry Kasparov, the the Russian grandmaster, if you could move twice for him, or a boxer. Imagine if one guy got to throw two punches for every one punch of the opposition. So the theory was the decision-making cycle, the faster you can get through it and just repeat that process over and over and over again, you will defeat your opposition. And this has led to such organisations, the US Marine Corps with uh, manoeuvre warfare doctrine so i was exposed to it a fair bit uh in my time in the australian military and i know that i'm actually not sure have, have you guys had much to do with the the OODA loop and the theory there rath
1: no i felt i mean i've i'm familiar with it i didn't study it at great length like you did um, in the helo world where we talked about a little bit more explicitly was the wells technique which was really about avoiding you know Triple A fire, all the ground stuff, um, and just how to maneuver the aircraft away from that. Cause we're not getting into dogfights, right? Like our opposition isn't another moving moving vehicle, so to speak, we're flying to a fixed target or even if they're moving, they're ground forces. So it's not like they're gonna outmaneuver us. So it's not, again, I'm, I've heard it, I've more than a handful of times throughout my career, but it's not something that we would, that I would study at great detail, right? Because my threats were usually coming from the ground.
0: Yeah. How about you there, Mark? Yes.
2: uh, Extensively, actually. Uh, So over at OODA Loop came out a couple of years ago within our uh, just kind of like what you said, but mainly like the uh, land warfare uh, portion of of training and and getting into that. And, um, you know, our whole thing is move, shoot and communicate and be able to do all three fluently while, while we're we're running, you know, especially at night on night vision with live fire going off and all kinds of stuff and making very fast decisions. Um, it, it came out, all the history that you explained and everything, um, we picked it up kind of from the Marine Corps. And uh, yeah, it's it's become kind of a staple uh, within how uh, leadership, well, not just leadership, but everybody can go ahead and, and utilize uh, OODA loop. Um, you know, like you said, <clears throat> Uh, just looking at observe, orient, decide, and act. Uh, for for us, it's you know it can be a tactical thing like observe the battlefield, orient yourself properly on the battlefield, right to the threat or the enemy or whatever you're trying to do. Make a decision, right? That's probably the biggest one. You know, a bad decision, ma- making a decision and being bad is is making you know. It, oh God, I messed it up making a bad decision quickly is better than not making a decision at all and sitting still. Okay. There, I got it out. Um, and then act, right? Hey, make your decision stick to it and, and act. And, uh, there's, there's always an old quote. I forget who said it, but it says, you know, he who flanks first wins. I know that's old school, you know, whatever, but the principle of it still stands. Um, and, uh, you know, for us, speed, speed is absolutely everything because we're so small and what we do, uh, if we, if we come up against a superior force or, uh, anything, we're not built to get in a hour, multi-hour gunfight. Like we got a short amount of ammo and, and, and firepower and stuff. And then we, we got to leave. Like, that's not our job is to sit there and duke it out the whole time. So, uh, OODA loop has got me through a lot of things. Um, definitely probably on my one deployment where I was working with uh multinational forces uh special operations forces and everybody was you know not enough chief or too many chiefs not enough Indians and it was just kind of like hey we can't sit here and have this debate we can't sit here or like route on the x and uh and it was just kind of popped in my head I remember I was like man OODA loop. like hey let's move we need to we need to take this place and, and get it knocked out and it was just kind of following it man and it it, was, it became like second nature for a while. If you put it into your mission planning and your daily uh, approach to how you're doing it is just constantly do it. Um, and it can carry over into personal life too, which I'm sure we all have examples of.
0: So it's become really popular in the business world. They used to use a plan, do, check, act, PDCA cycle. And I've seen this OODA loop stuff getting uh, introduced into some of the references while I was doing my MBA study. And it's amazing the impact it's had out of this. It was a single slide deck presentation from a, you know, like a nerdy sort of US Air Force colonel at the Pentagon called the essence of winning and learning, was it winning and losing the essence of winning and losing. I mean, and it's just blossomed. So the four steps, as Micah said, is observe, orient, decide, act, the observation. So if you think about a fighter pilot, he's in a turning fight. So he's sitting there under G there's weapons all shoot forward off the aircraft. So you're trying to maneuver around behind the other guy. So you're looking across a circle that you're both turning. You're maybe one or two miles apart maximum. And very, very small changes in that uh, enemy aircraft position, small angular changes are gonna lead to major changes over, I don't know, 20 to 30 seconds in the future. So if if you can make that initial observation about what's happening, so literally, it was seen clearly through that American bubble canopy that a Russian aircraft making very, very small angular changes. That's that initial observation. And on the battlefield, it's very clear. someone with a set of binoculars are in a good position to, uh, in a high ground, uh, being able to observe the enemy disposition and so on. Or it could be in business, getting that data on what's happening in the uh, market, what's happening with competitors, what's happening with demographics. So there's all that observe stage. So what's affecting me? What's affecting my opponent? What could affect either of us later on? Can I make predictions and how accurate were my prior predictions? So there's this whole observe piece. Did you have any more on that stage? Uh, either of you guys?
1: No, I'm actually just waiting on the Orient because I've always understood that, that was that's where we kind of have to filter through our biases and try to seek your handicaps and because the observation is great, but if you don't understand your own handicaps, your own biases, that observation yep. might be skewed. And um, I can't remember the guy's name. He's a pretty. It'll come to me. But he was a Harvard professor, and he did a big piece on it. He just said, out of the obviously, each one of those has key components that can be extremely effective. You know, one is not greater than the uh, the sum of all but he was just saying that that orient was really, really, if you had to put any emphasis on that and any on anything, sorry, it would be the orient because you really have to be aware of those biases because some 100%. are obvious and, and some are not right. Some are yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of maybe uh, not geopolitical, but you know, like, uh, I don't know, inherent to you. That's all you've ever known.
0: Yes. The, the orient stage is the key stage. So there's, it's, basically the computer processor that the information is going to get filtered through. And that's your DNA, your childhood, your education, everything that's led you to be equipped to make a decision because the decision comes after this. So it's a lifetime of training that puts you in a position where the very experienced fighter pilot, the very experienced special forces guy, the you know very experienced businessman is aware, will make better observations to start with, but then their they're processing is far superior. So as, as Raph has said, the Orient is the key stage in the OODA loop. So you're not gonna be aware of decision options if you're less experienced and you haven't seen the scenario before. Mike going through a building is gonna see it and know a whole lot more about what's going on than I would, for example. So the initial observation stage is taking the information in and it can be thought of as a person in a hide on a high bit of ground observing the enemy it could be the fighter pilot or it could be that businessman anything further on the observe stage mike
2: no no you guys got it pretty good man
0: all right then the orient so boyd said orientation isn't just a state you're in it's a process you're always orienting so this is connecting yourself with reality seeing the world as it is And trying to get, as Raph was saying, free from your uh, cognitive biases and shortcuts. So your cultural traditions, your genetic heritage, your ability to analyze and synthesize, and then the influx of new information. So this is the key to the whole step. So did you want to um, open this one up a bit there, Raph?
1: Well, I mean, I I could. Sorry, I thought you were going to say something more. um, So I'm just trying to gather my thoughts here. But um, yeah, yeah really just trying to give like an anecdotal personal story where, and I was, this is kind of boring. It's almost very benign, but it's something you talk about, you know, how especially Mike referred to the fact that the OODA loop is something that he continually uses constantly. And the truth is I kind of do it too. And I'm sure you do, you do as well, Melon, when you're flying, you know, you're constantly, especially as an aviator, as you're flying forward, you're always, you're always observing, right. You're, but you're doing multiple things at one time, not, let me retract that statement. Not at the same time. You're processing them in a, in a, in a, in a frequency, whether it's fast or slow, whatever is appropriate for you. But the point is, you're taking a ton of information and out of that information, you're correlating some of that stuff together. And you're always, again, as far as the orient goes, it, it's something that you're always considering the current state that you're in, whether it's emotion, whether it's fatigue, whether it's relationship. I mean, there's, there's so many layers to it. And that's where kind of going back to what Mike talks about frequently, which is, you know, just having that self introspection and really getting to know yourself. I think that's where you're the most effective in that stage to really, really hone in on who you are. And then you'll truly understand the biases. And I think once you hash that out, it's not something you're going to do every time, but if you do that pretty frequently in the beginning, like you kind of like what you said, Melon. as you get uh, more senior, you get uh, you start mastering uh, whatever craft that it is that you're mastering um, that's already, it's already inherent to that whole process, right? You're, you don't have to physically think about it anymore. And I, and I caught myself as a young aviator, always looking at, you know, again, Melon's going to make fun of me, but obviously I'm closer to the ground flying in helicopters. But I found myself a lot of times, like looking at my airspeed indicator and looking outside to make sure that that motion parallax, the, the cues that I would normally see through my eyes were actually correlating with the airspeed that I was seeing in the daytime, not that big of a deal at night you better bet your ass that's a pretty serious thing, right? Because what I do once I'm dropping guys off like Mike on the ground really has to do with my rate of approach into the X, quote unquote. Um, And that's where if you think you're not going as fast as you think you are, you're actually going faster, that could be very catastrophic. I mean, now you're talking massive power changes that you don't have. I mean, it's just, it can snowball pretty damn quickly on you. And so it's important to to, to continually do that so kind of like what Boyd said it's a process it's not a state
0: the way that I always uh, like I think you've really described it well there raf that the the observation is all the data coming in and now it's the connecting the dot stage and as you're saying there's a whole for us when we're flying there's a whole bunch of instruments there and you you could let your eyes go across it you could have your eyes stop on one instrument or that you know there could be like a raster a, a an inexperienced person seeing those same gauges is not going to take the information in or might just see one bit of information. So it's that processing step of being able to connect those dots. And I think you've, you've touched on, I know we hear Mike talk about this a lot, that self-awareness step is definitely in that area where you're moving into that mastery stage. So you're aware of your, your own fatigue, you're aware of your own distractions and limitations and your mental and emotional state and you know how that's going to affect your decision-making. And then you can, you know, zero those things out and hopefully get into a more uh, appropriate decision.
1: And I just would like to add one more thing. And if you're in an environment where you're dealing, where it's not just a one-person operation, right? So pilots, depending on your cockpit size, it's yourself or a couple of other people. Maybe it's a, a, it's a bigger crew, like a C-17 or, you know, Well, actually most cockpits are two pilots now, but you know, back when you had an engineer, two engineers, I know there's still a lot of Russian aircraft that function that way, or even Mike, who's got, you know, a small team, whether it's a couple guys or you're talking an entire platoon or company size, whatever you guys have. But the point is, what I'm alluding to is that um, that Orient should also encompass the individuals that you're surrounded by, because hopefully you're in an environment where you know the individuals and you know, strengths and weaknesses, or you know, that, you know, if you know them enough, you might know that, you know, your buddy, Bobby or whatever, just isn't having a good day. Maybe he got in a massive fight with his wife or whatever. There's a million scenarios, but the point is, those are actually, those are things I would not overlook. I would absolutely consider them when that individual is giving me a piece of information. And, you know, cause if he's off, I'm like, oh, I understand what his brain is somewhere else, you know? And I can, I can take that into account as I'm making my final calculations it's just something to think about. There's so much data and there's, you know, but I'd like to allude back to what Mike said, you know, it's better to be wrong and, and kind of move swiftly so that you have time to recover on the backside versus like, you're waiting, you're eating up all that time, trying to make that decision. And then finally there is no time. So if you did get the wrong decision, you might not have time to recover.
0: Yeah. hundred percent. So this is just remember, this is a a competition. This is winning and losing. So this is not just you know, a maths problem that you want to just work through in slow time or an engineering solution that you need to just work your way through it in sequence. This is, there's an opposition involved. And so they're going to be doing, and they might not know it, but they're going to be doing a noodle loop on you at the same time. So this orient step can be considered, you know, just before you jump into a decision, this is the step before that. So this is when you're experienced and you have skill and expertise in something, It's a little pause and if you can, you know, you're more uh, experienced and you have more training and skill, it gets shorter. However, it's just not the jumping in that perhaps an experienced or younger person might do in a situation. Mike, what are your – I know you've, you've done a lot of this stuff. So your insights or help for people when they're thinking about the orient stage, which I always found this was the key, as Raf said, and it was the hardest part to understand.
2: Yeah, so uh, I'll, I'll relate it to a tactical decision first, right? So orienting yourself on the battlefield, which means, you know, uh, if I have multiple fire teams out and I'm against an enemy, you can position yourself in a certain formation, whether it's like a, a wedge or setting up a, a flank, or maybe you're setting up for an ambush, you're orienting yourself to best receive the threat or to attack the threat, right? Now, that's a physical thing, that's, that's maneuvering of forces, but at the same time, just throughout an operation or anything else, that the OODA loop, you know, as you guys alluded to is also a mental thing. Like I need to constantly assess myself and what I'm going through, whether it's stress, confusion, maybe I'm exhausted, maybe I haven't eaten in, in a few days, like all those factors come into play. So it's kind of like you have to do an OODA loop of the physical world, an OODA loop of your mental state and an OODA loop of like your emotional state uh, all at once, right? Um, I know it's a lot to kind of think about that, but when you're in those situations, like I said, the whole thing is like the move, shoot and communicate. Right. And I need to do those three fluently. So I have to be able to, you know, I have to be moving and go orient myself the right direction. I have to think about what I'm going to say, why I'm going to say it, how to, how to say it. So everybody gets it up. All right. And then I have to act, which is the shoot. So I, I kind of relate move, shoot, communicate to the OODA loop process and they feed into one another. Um, so, you know, looking at a tactical situation, but also too, it's just, you know, being in a room, um, could be with, you know, like I said, the international special forces that I've worked with and being in a room, there's a lot of awkwardness and, Hey, uh, we don't want to do it that way. And we do it this way, whatever. Um, you can use the same stuff in in that type of setting, right? An office setting, professional setting, you know, whatever, uh, business setting, And it's just kind of, hey, read the room, orientate yourself, right, for what you want to have, like what's your end state. Hey, I got to orient myself and observe. Hey, what's the room doing? How are they receiving me? You know, all that. And then make a decision. Hey, I'm going to say this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to push out this course of action, right? And then do it, right? That's I've had many instances where I've gotten through all three, the first three, and then I get scared shitless and I can't act out of fear. Out of fear, out of uh, oh shit, I I don't know if it's going to happen the way I want it to, so I'm uh, I don't know, and I've shot myself in the foot many times. So uh, is, anyway, as far as like orient and everything, it's more than just physical, you know, it's it's kind of a whole body type thing.
0: It's a lot of a lot of high quality training focuses on this step. It equips it equips the individual or the group to go through this step well. So exposing people to realistic training situations before so that the initial shock of new information coming in is diminished that period of time when people are in that startle uh, effect that gets described where people freeze for a second. So like the decision-making that was exemplified by uh, Sullenberg when he ditched into the Hudson, still have a startle period while the observation is happening. And then his processing, you know, he's the old uh us air force f4 fighter pilot the safety guy a whole lifetime of experience led him to make the decision and then that and then the action that followed in the shortest time possible that they couldn't replicate when they try and put people in the simulator and they gave them a a uh the same situation with no pre-warning so it's a lifetime of training equips the orient step to be done fast and accurately and uh I saw Boyd describe this as a scheme of pulling things apart. So the analysis, putting them back together, synthesis in new combinations to find how apparently unrelated ideas and actions can be related to one another. So it could be, this is also part of a post-mission wash up, that real analysis to see where were those dots later on that seemed so confusing at the time, how were they related and how could you have improved your OODA loop? All right, decide. So, this is, the, this is the step that uh, a lot of people get to maybe a bit too quickly or the inexperienced person is like wanting to act and they haven't taken that, that moment to take information in the processing. So here you are, you know, in the orient step, you're going to have taken information in. now you've broken out perhaps five possible options and the more experienced you are and, you know, the higher quality, the, the group is you might see more and more and more options. And now this is the one you need to make a decision. And as, as we've been talking about, a fast and an average decision executed well now is much better than the perfect decision executed too late. And uh, you know you talk about everyone has a plan until someone punches you in the face. So the decision step, so you gotta be flexible. You gotta be able to adapt as you go, but it's picking one of those options that you see and going down that decision tree, so eliminating other ones. Got any uh, points on this one, Raph?
1: Yeah, the one that I commonly use, and I use throughout my life, uh, not just at work, but even personally. It's, you know, when you do make a decision on whatever it is that you're trying to execute, you know, I always say you want to confidently trust, but just as quickly you want to verify. Now, that doesn't mean you're gonna you're gonna spend, you know, if I thirty second decision to whatever decision I come up with, I'm going to spend the next seven minutes verifying. What I mean by that is if I'm in a group of people, I'm going to use them as my filter. I'm going to use them as my sounding board. And I'm going to be like, Hey, common sense check. Does this make sense to you? Yes, it does. Okay. Now, is it perfect? No, but I'm not looking for perfect right now. I'm looking for, does this make sense? Or am I going to get us into a bigger set of trouble? That's um, yeah, something I do with my wife. That's something I do with most things in my life. So confidently, Uh, Trust, but verify.
0: So I've seen this done well in uh, Raf and I know there's a thing in aviation called crew resource management. So in a multi-crew situation, this OODA loop could be getting done by, as Raf said, two to three people could be involved in this decision in a larger group. I've been in uh, multi-crew aircraft with 17 guys in a crew, but that observe orient, orient step is occurring and the decision, how are you gonna pick that one of the options one of the good ways I've seen this done is having the key ex, the subject matter expert speak first, and as the the senior person try to go last. So you try to get a range of the people's initial decisions, what they would do. One, two, three. If the senior person speaks in pretty much every organization, nearly everyone just falls in alignment on whatever that senior person just said. And people are like, oh, he, you know, he or she has spoken already. That must be the right thing because they're the senior one. And it happens in good organizations and bad that when the senior person speaks, everyone else just aligns on that. It could be for a bunch of reasons of fear and and all of those other things. But I've seen this done well. Get the subject matter expert to speak first and they might give a bit of the why can come out of that step. And then, but make sure you're getting the other dissenting views. And this is part of a process where you, through training, you're encouraging people to speak up when they've got that Hey, have you considered this thing? Like Raff, uh told us about last time where he showed the uh, test pilot uh, aircraft captain by drooping the rotors there was missing information. That's that step. So make sure you're getting all the information and then the decision-maker, the aircraft captain, the team leader, the platoon sergeant, whatever it is, the business team uh, leader. You know, you've taken all the information and now decide. How about you, Mike, have you got any uh, tips or how you've seen this step taught well?
2: Uh, I, I think it's a thing through, just through doing the actions. I think confidence is just a big part of it, like to be honest with you. And it's not something that you can just do it and pick it up and just roll right into it. it it's it's practicing it, it's pushing, pushing yourself into those situations where you have to, really stress and go through because like it could be something super simple to use this and then it could be something super complex right and just like riding a bike just like anything else you need time and practice and exposure in order to figure out what you're doing and, and how to implement this right so it's not just like hey hey we're talking about the OODA loop and you can just jump right out tomorrow and do it, it, it it's a lot of defining the each level and, and kind of where you're at and what you're able to handle right we talked about it but I would say confidence is the biggest portion um, uh, of this. And uh, if you're not confident, you know, it's, it's really not gonna do it. And, and we talked about it, you know, the fear, the unknown, like, oh man, well, I don't wanna be that guy that made the decision or I did this and then I'm taking the heat. Like you're already self-defeating yourself in the moment instead of just trusting your evaluation at each step and being like, yeah, from what I know and what I understand, I believe this is right in the moment and it, and it can be quick, right? Especially in a gunfight, you don't have minutes, you have seconds, which seem like sometimes hours, but it's just like, yeah, I need to make a decision and I'm confident for what I know because I'm confident in my training. I'm confident in my exposure that I've been through and I can proceed
0: through it. You can get the, um, that analysis paralysis, a lot of people pausing at this step and their father, a, a, a good thought to hold here is perfect is the enemy of good. So all we need is a good decision. You don't need the perfect one. And the the perfect one normally implies a long pause at the decision step that the enemy is not going to give you, that the changing world is not going to give you. So as, as Mike has just said, trust the training and the decision-making uh, exposure and experience you've had before this and jump in. So you've taken into account information you've seen potential outcomes and now we need to get down that pathway quickly because remember this is winning and losing this is an opposition is involved it could be in the business sense a changing market or a competitor is going to take your uh, your uh, customers away or it could be a whole range of other things so don't hesitate once you've, you've seen the outcomes select uh and you you know through decision you've pruned off those other ones and remember the oodle loop is an ongoing process you've only got to get through this step now and then you're going to oodle loop again in the in the in the future we're going to have that opportunity course correct based on taking in further observations about what happened out of this process any any other any more just for the decision step all right so then step 4 act okay so this is the execution this is the the boxer weaving to the left and throwing a hook this is the a uh, fighter pilot, you know, rolling and pulling, trying to get his guns onto the enemy. And I won't even blunder through uh, an analogy for what Mike would do. So this is <laughs> actions pertaining to carrying out the decision. And then the small the small changes related to that decision. So, Raf, have you got any stuff on the act step?
1: Uh, the only thing is that um, as you're acting, you should always be willing... To adjust accordingly. Like, don't, it's okay to make mistakes. And this, this is tough. Listen, this is, this is going to take a lifetime to try to like get right. But the point I'm trying to get to is that, you know, after you act or while you're acting, it's okay to maybe change course a couple degrees or just make small corrections. You know what I mean, like, don't, don't just because you picked the course. And even if you see catastrophic failure coming your way, don't stick to it because you're like, well, it's what I decided. It's, it's the act I'm going to do. Like, you know, I leave that 1% margin of error to be like, hey, I might have got this wrong. So I might, you know, steer away and pull, you know, like you said, pull away a couple degrees just to avoid whatever mistake is coming at me. But um, yeah, I, again, that's a lifetime of training. I mean, I and I'm sure even as a master at something, you're probably still going to make those mistakes.
0: And the execute step is going to occur, and then this is referred, the loop part of the, 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 the title OODA loop implies you're going back immediately after the act. Then there's an observation about the impact of that action. You know, you, <clears throat> you see which way your own aircraft has maneuvered, what's happened in, inside your own aircraft, what's happened to the enemy aircraft. You know, you're, you're, you've weaved and you're throwing that hook. And even before you fully fully committed the hook, you're watching as that opposition fighter Assessed is he blocking it? Should you fully commit? Should you change? So, as Raff has said, it's not you know action occurs and that's it, and throw caution to the wind and stop observing. So this this process starts and begins. Boyd was referred to as forty second Boyd by all his contemporaries at the time because they it was a thing in the whole U.S. Air Force fighter pilot community that a dogfight with this guy was over inside forty seconds. It was that was his reputation and that was his nickname. And I mean that's that's the speed that this guy's operating at. So the OODA loop action step, Mike, have you got any uh, points for the, that you've, how you've seen this tour uh, Trust.
2: That, that's that's honestly the word that kind of comes up to it is, you know, we, we, we went through the steps and you have the confidence to do it and you, and you make the decision, trust, trust that you're gonna act it and you're gonna do it and execute it, right? Um, that takes a long time. I mean, for, for what I do and, you know, obviously what you guys do and becoming a, a professional pilot and all this stuff, I mean, with dogfighting, you know, I've seen Top Gun once or twice, but that's all I know about dogfighting, Right. But, uh, greatest
0: documentary ever filmed.
2: That's right. That's right. But that just doesn't happen. Right. But, you know, uh, just having trust that the decision that you made is going to result in the, in the action that you want, you know, and, uh, Uh, you know, one thing with the act uh, or with this whole process, it kind of brings it up is, you know, we, we call it the end and that it can constantly restart like, like you did. And it's constantly, it's like the loading symbol, right? It's just circle, evaluate, circle, evaluate, circle, evaluate. Um, you can skip the O and, uh, O and D in this process and go from observe to act in some situations like that, that could be called muscle memory right? So as soon as I see something, I'm automatically, I'm acting, right? That, that could be a muscle memory where you're training yourself. Um, so if you're always expecting that, hey, I need to have all four steps to go through some situations, whether it's stressful, whether it's super fast, you're, you know, the unknown just smacks you out of nowhere. Um, you might go from one to the other, or you might skip one, or you might not even get to the act uh, because stuff is happening, but you still have to go through the process and all these things we've talked about uh, about being knowing yourself and being honest. Uh, there's a there's a saying within war is Murphy's law. You know anything that anything that is bad can happen. And within that process, same goes for life, right? We have no control over life and what happens. Same with war. You know, I can do everything right, and I'm still going to get thrown a curveball. Uh, but believing in that pro- in a process like OODA loop and going through it is a great guide or pillar that I can use to go back and at least be like, Hey, that situation turned out terrible. And looking back, there was nothing I could have done better, but I was still conscious in the moment processing what was happening. And I made the best decision I could for me and my team. Right. And if you can go back and do that, at least you have that to hang on to, um, because you're trying to process it the right way instead of just going, fuck it. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I mean, honestly, <laughs> that, there's a lot of those people out there where they get nuts and they're just like, well, it's over and they just they just quit. Um, you could tell a lot about a person when you hear that, you know?
0: And like, I think if you were to think of, say, a boxing analogy, someone like Floyd Mayweather, and you could talk about the oodle loop he's doing in a fight, I think his training and his decades of experience lead him to do. You know, it looks like that counter punch has just. There's been the slightest movement of the opposition's shoulder, and he's he's just let the left jab fly and drilled the guy in the chin. And I think that would be the same for you, Mike. That if you know you've you've trained to the step and you've got to the point where you trust your decision making process that orient decide. So you see an enemy moving, and boom, your your counter reactions is going out in a super fast way. Like I've seen, uh, I've watched fighter pilots in simulators and you're like, you're thinking, how is this guy doing all of these things at once? And it's all that uh, orient decide step is just rapid. It's just collapsed down a fractions of a second. Training people to improve the decision-making. I think the, the focus on that training to improve their orient step and then letting them in- increase the awareness of the number of decisions they can make and then, as you're saying, trust yourself and commit to it, so that that action flows. Like, don't get stuck, don't have that hesitation, and when you know you're right, just execute now. So, there's a couple of principles he has. Uh, go ahead, there, Ruth.
1: I was going to say, I think one of the underlying themes that I keep popping up here is, and this is this is probably something that can be adapted to the to the business world is um, not just the military is always trained for contingencies. Right? Don't wait until they happen. And that's one of the things that the three of us are really, really good at, because that's all we've done in our entire military careers. Like we train for contingencies because, you know, when those things occur in our fields, they can be extremely catastrophic and and fatal. So in the business world, I would I would advise, hey, man, don't wait till whatever it is that's catastrophic to your company or, or your little business unit. You know, don't wait till that happens. Like, think about it and think about what the appropriate steps would be so that because then that's when you could use OODA loop a lot more effectively because you've already kind of have a, a, a framework, so to speak, that you've done through contingency, contingency training.
0: I just a, a point that people might not know every single time an aircraft goes for a flight, every time is in his Black Hawk, I was in my uh, military aircraft and every airliner that takes off just at the hold short before they go. The pilot in that flight station goes through his emergency brief on actions on what he's going to do through the very, or she's going to do through the various stages. If there's an engine failure all the way through that departure. So they've done this, you know, when you're at, RAF and my level experience, literally thousands of times, and we never skip that step of just, it's a very fast contingency refresh. I say the same freaking words every single time. I have a look at the wind, make my little observations, and then I just state again, my decision tree and boom off I go and like I see the guys who are this like they've got those numbers down and you could give them engine failures in the simulator and it's just the decision making is fast and high quality the actions are flowing aircraft are recovering from situations you thought maybe they wouldn't or they've got time to process and have to follow on compared to others so what Raf's saying there is, this is something that's done in certain uh, professions. Aviation, for example, I know the mic would do a whole lot of actions on. All the contingencies get covered at a certain stage of their briefing. In business, that's something you could probably want to talk about. Like you're going in to do a sales pitch, let's cover off a few what-if scenarios. What if these various failure points occur? So you, you've got you've got them fresh, and they can be something that's specific to your industry, and you cover them pretty much every time. Get into a routine thing.
1: Any more? uh, Well, Melon, if I could just add one more thing, and I don't know if you do this, but since we're talking about aviation, in my last uh, job, when I was flying overseas doing a lot of the ISR work, um, you know, because of some of the places I was, some of the airports I was taking off from, you know, we had sixteen thousand foot mountains literally eight miles in front of the runway, which is, which is not a lot if you're if you're heavy enough, and we were always um, at max gross. Um, But the point I'm trying to make is. Not only did I rehearse that and I say that out loud, I also visualized, no shit, if I lose an engine, the minute this aircraft rotates, where am I gonna feel the pressure? Oh yeah, my right foot is gonna feel pressure you know, from the paddle and I'm gonna wanna hold the yoke slightly X amount, you know, like I literally would visualize that. I would take five seconds, visualize it, and then as I'm jetting down the runway, that's, you know, it, the idea was to, that if it did occur, it, was not, it wasn't going to be a surprise. It wasn't going to be like, oh, my God, what do I do now? It's like, oh, I literally just had this exact same thought five seconds ago. And At- it's, it's, it's a common practice that I, I tip this day. I do near, if I don't do it every day it, or every time I fly, it's damn near every time I fly.
0: Yep, 100%. 100%. So visualization, part of training and rehearsal.
1: Yeah.
0: You've, uh, you've absolutely nailed it there, Raf. Do you have any more? Uh, we're probably near the end here. Mike, do you have any more observations or... Uh, grains of wisdom you've seen from OODA loop and execution?
2: Uh, not off the top of my head, man. I mean, we you, you could really, really get in depth with with a lot of this and how to apply it to every specific situation. Um, I, I think just what to take away from it is uh, it's, it's a very uh, simple, you know, it's only four letters um, that you can Remember, you know, it's some not drastic philosophy and like all this other stuff, but uh, if you can remember those four things and just kind of, up, you know, go through it every day and whether you're going to work, whether you're a parent or whatever, like you could totally do an noodle loop with your kids, right? Because everybody knows kids can be just completely random and, you know, constantly assessing what the hell are you doing in my house? You know what I mean? But uh, you you can just take it and it's very simple, something to remember and reference. Uh, just like the four pillars that we've talked about always is like, man, when you wake up, what are you doing? Well, I'm doing the noodle loop and I'm, a, I'm kind of assessing what do I need to do today? How do I orientate myself towards the day? Right. What's going on around me. Right. And then I got to make some decisions, right? Hey, today I have to be more of this or I have to do that. Right. And then just act on them and trust that you're doing it for the right reasons.
0: Right. Did you have any last ones? I've got, I've got two uh, overarching ones that Boyd talked about. And he talked about deliberate speed. So the speed of the cycle, being aware of how fast you need to be. And in a business sense or in a planning stage, strategic thing, it could be slow. Like, you know, you've got a couple of days to, to get this decision and then the actions will flow. Or it could be, you know, you know, Mike's moving into a building. This OODA loop is going to be down inside fractions of a second. Raf and I could be aware in an emergency situation, it's, you know, 10 to 20 second cycle that we need to get through this in. So that's that first one, deliberate speed, be aware of how fast you need this loop to be. And the second one is comfort with uncertainty. So knowing you're not gonna have all the information, you're never gonna have a global position and you're never gonna have uh, the perfect, um, the perfect execution is not gonna occur. And knowing that yourself in the future is also not going to be in that position. So those two deliberate speed and comfort with uncertainty. I know you hear uh, the listeners would have heard Mike say plenty of times, be comfortable with being uncomfortable. It's a bit like that. Knowing that there's never going to be a perfect position or time that someone's going to go here you go. Now you've got all the information. Here are all the options and I'm going to highlight the perfect one for you. It's never going to occur. So we're always operating in a, situation of limited information, limited time, and uh, you're going to be in an uncertain world. So those two are the big ones over the top. So deliberate speed and comfort with uncertainty. All right, OODA Loop. This was a short presentation that uh, was given at the Pentagon, the essence of winning and losing. And this just revolutionized aircraft design. The idea of hands on throttle and stick so that the fighter pilot has all of the weapon controls, radar controls on the controls where his hands are on the control column and the throttle came out of this. The Russians had all the switches and gauges on the uh, instrument panel, and those guys were slower to change the radar modes than the American guys were, where they could just push the buttons as they flew. So this was groundbreaking stuff, and it's been applied across manoeuvre warfare with the Marines, and it's gone now into business. And I'm sure uh, if you if you want to look into it, you'll be able to find ways you can apply it in your own life to try and improve your own decision making all right so once again a reminder that we've got our little goals here of doubling our social media footprint by the end of the year we're looking for 50 reviews and uh, 100 ratings if possible Uh, please share the podcast out into your community we we love hearing the feedback of how far the ripples from uh, the little stones we throw out into the pond go and uh, thank you all for listening see you next time